long time ago, in ancient history, a group of humans banded together and created a new technology, and they named that technology Facebook. Facebook has taken over our world, but when it first came onto the scene, I had absolutely no interest. It started as a college directory. Honestly, I think it was just a bunch of guys wanting to get girls' phone numbers and contact info. But it started just for college students. But then pretty soon, those college students graduated, and they were losing connection. So they opened up Facebook to anyone and everybody. Now, if you're over the age of 13, you can get your own Facebook profile. Well, the young adults where I was on staff, I was on staff as the young adult pastor at a church in Cedar Rapids, and the young adults that I was ministering to were joining Facebook in droves. Everyone was on there. They're all having these conversations. They'd migrated from the ugly MySpace over to the clean-looking Facebook, and they were having a ball. Well, I had a friend say, Aaron, if you are their pastor, you're the young adult pastor, you need to join Facebook. You need to know what's happening in their lives. You need to see the connections that are being made. You will just be a better pastor, a better shepherd, a better friend, leader, servant to them if you join Facebook. So reluctantly, I signed up for the social media platform. And sure enough, I saw some of what was happening in their lives. I saw what was going on. Saw some things that wasn't so good. I saw a lot of blurry photos of food and cats. But still, I was on Facebook and I was connected with the young adults. But before long, I was no longer connected with just the young adults of our church. Pretty soon, other people in our church had joined and found me and sent me friend requests. People from my childhood hometown started sending me requests. Friends from college. Some of my former students where Leanne and I served at a missionary kid school in Venezuela. Friends from Colorado when we'd spent three years there. Suddenly, I was reconnected with a whole bunch of people. And some of those people were also friends with Leanne. But Leanne did not have a Facebook account. And so inevitably, over dinner, I'd tell her, oh, hey, today I read about, you know, so-and-so, and and this is going on in their lives. Well, those of you who know Leanne know that she is a detailed person. Like, she's amazing at it. But that means that when I come home at the end of the day, she says, how was your day? She isn't content with just fine. Like, oh, it was a normal day. No, she wants the blow-by-blow. She's a detailed person. So when she'd ask me questions about our friends, oh, well, did they, what did they say about this or that? I, I don't know. So I'd pull out my laptop. We'd look through Facebook, and she could start reading it for herself. Pretty soon, she would just start borrowing my laptop, going through Facebook to stay connected. And eventually, she started commenting, hey, this is Leanne on Aaron's account. Pretty soon, it became our Facebook account. <laughs> Well, one day we got the kids in bed I come out and I have some work to do. So I go to my bag and I go to get out my computer and it's not there. Where's my laptop? And I look over and there on the couch is Leanne with it open, scrolling through Facebook. And in that moment, I saw my wife on my computer and I thought, that's mine. Give it back. I was mature enough not to say it out loud, but the only reason I remember the story is because what happened the next day. I had a meeting with a young married couple. Their kids were four and two, and somehow in the course of our conversation, I shared that story of my internal thoughts. I kind of thought it was a little funny, but this young mom didn't find it so much funny. 
Because she heard those words in her home every single day. That's mine. Give it back. So she looks at me and says, oh, your inner two-year-old was coming out. Because in that moment, I was not seeking to be generous, to give, to let Leanne have time reconnecting with friends. I was wanting what was mine, and I was wanting to keep it all for myself. I was being a keeper. Do you know anyone who is a keeper? And today, our definition of a keeper is not that, you know, really awesome guy or gal that, you know, your parents say, man, you got to keep that one. She's a keeper. We're not talking a goalkeeper. We're talking about a person who wants to keep everything for themselves. Like, this is the sibling who wants the toy for themselves when they're young and wants the inheritance for themselves when they're old. This is the person who they want to swap days off with you. But when you ask them, no, they're not going to swap a day with you. This is the person who they will, they want your notes so they know what the homework is, but they're not about to help you with your homework. I mean, this person doesn't even let someone else cut in front of them in the checkout line at the grocery store because they want to keep everything to themselves. Do you know anyone like that? That this person is tiring, aren't they? It's exhausting to, to, to work with them. Right now, you may be thinking of a sibling Maybe a family member, maybe that coworker, maybe it's the guy or girl who lives down the hall, maybe it's your ex. Well, the person I want you to think of is the person that you see in the mirror. You see, all of us have our moments where we are more keepers than givers, where we want to keep the ice cream for ourselves. There's only one serving left. Or we want to keep our time to ourselves. We don't want to go volunteer, even though it technically fits our schedule. I I just don't want to do it. We don't want to give these things away. We want to keep to ourselves. Why? Why is there something in us that has these moments where we just want to keep? Because I think deep down in us, something got twisted. And we believe that if we give something away... We now lose. And if we lose it, we're somehow like not as good. We're less better. We're less cool. We're less happy. We're less satisfied. And so therefore we think we have to keep in order to keep that happiness, to keep our joy, to keep our contentment. So we want to be a keeper and not a giver. But God is not a keeper. God did not create this world and then seek to keep it for himself. No, God created this world and then created Adam and Eve. It says, here you go. Take care of it. Isn't it beautiful? I'm pretty good on that. And I'm giving it to you. And we see God also give us his wisdom. He gives us his presence in Jesus and the Holy Spirit. He, he gives us a grace. I mean, God gave everything, even Jesus giving his life for us. God is a giver. Here's the thing. If, if you are a Jesus follower, then, then you know that you're supposed to live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved, as our wall outside in the lobby says. Which means you are to also give like Jesus gave. In other words, you're not to be a giver. I mean, a, a keeper. I said that totally wrong. Uh, if you're doing the podcast, Dan, don't slice that part out. Uh, uh, make sure that people know, don't be a keeper. We end up living out this thing of keeping, and yet it does not jibe with our faith. We are to give. That's the rub. 
Because you see, when we give, we are in a sense having to say, God, I trust you. When we keep, we're living in fear. We're saying, God, I don't trust you to provide. To help us wrestle with this, 2 Corinthians 9 takes us deeper into it. So if you brought a Bible, I invite you to open up to 2 Corinthians 9. Today we're going to do verses 8 through 11. If you do not have a Bible, we're going to put the scripture up on the screen so you can read along. But as I say every week, I just strongly encourage you, get a Bible. Your learning will go so much deeper if you have one in your hands because we want to build in the habits of either opening that book up or, or opening it up on your phone and just making this a part of your life. Because we not only want to study it here on Sundays, we want you studying it throughout the week. Because the more you read it, the more you're going to understand God's love for you, his heart, and who Jesus is. Because if you're going to live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved, you need to know the heart of Jesus so you can reflect that. So please, get a Bible. If you need to download one to your phone, by all means, do so. If you need to stop by our resource table, we've got paper copies out there. We've got two different translations. We'd love to just give one of those to you. But please, get yourself a Bible. As we get ready to read 2 Corinthians 9, 8 through 11, uh, let me open in prayer, and then we will dive in. So, Heavenly Father, we now come to your holy scriptures. Uh, Lord, many of us bring our own ideas, our own biases into this. And God, if any of those biases are off, if, if any of those past things are baggage, would you just right now shake those off, remove those, so that what we see and what we hear is what you have for us today. Father, it is absolutely amazing that you wrote these words through the pen of Paul so long ago, and they have impacted countless generations. And now here we are in 2021, reading these same words, hearing these same ideas. And so God, please use them as you have in the past in us now. God, would you help us to become the people who truly trust you? And we even see that in our finances. So God, may you just go beyond what I have prepared to say. And would you do what only you can do, touching the hearts and minds of everyone who's tuning in and listening. And we pray and ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Join me, 2 Corinthians 9, starting at verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. As I do most weeks, I am uh, using the ESV, the English Standard Version. But I will readily admit that the ESV on these, uh, what, three, four verses is a little harder to understand. Uh, every week I tend to look at multiple translations, and, and some of the others were just a little easier to grasp the concepts. And so I seriously thought about switching to something else this week. But then I thought, you know what, I'm not going to wimp out. Let's churn through this. You see, the English Standard Version, the translators, aimed for what is called a word-for-word -word approach. Now, just so you know, it is impossible to do a word-for-word -word translation of the Bible. Right? If we had an actual word-for-word -word translation, none of us would really understand it and grasp it. So there has to be some massaging of the text in order to put it into a readable format. 
But the ESV, they had a bias, if you will, of trying to get as close to the original as they could. And and so that is why I tend to teach from it. Now, I I don't say that to say that it's somehow better than the thought-for-thought translations, like your New Living Translation or maybe like the NIV. I mean, after all, we have New Living Translations back out on our resource table. So clearly, we're not against a thought-for-thought approach. For some people, that's the right translation. That's what's going to really help them to learn. But I decided that I would stick with that ESV and just for us to take time to chew through it, to work through it, because there's some really important concepts that we can get. So maybe your translation is going to be a little easier, but we're going to take the time to just begin with the basis of the ESV and see what it is that God wrote through Paul and the ESV translators have given to us today. So let's begin with that first phrase there in verse 8. It says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you. I don't know about you, but I just tend to not use the word abound in everyday language. Like I don't look at my children and say, oh, wow, your bowl is really abounding with animal crackers. You know, I don't talk to my neighbor and say, man, my yard is really abounding with weeds. How about yours? Like, it's just not a word we use on a regular basis. So it it feels a little foreign to us. But if you really stop and think about it, we know what abound means. That abound comes from the same root word where we get abundance. To have something in abundance is, is to have an excess, to be overflowing with it. That's why the Net Bible, which I really like, as well as the Christian Standard Bible, use the word overflow. It, so if you look at it, it would be, and God is able to make all grace overflow to you. I want you to hear that today. God's grace overflows to you. He doesn't give you a little bit. He doesn't give you just enough. He doesn't give you the minimum amount needed. No, it overflows. Through Jesus Christ, his grace overflows to you. And that's the key word. It isn't just God's presence that overflows to you. It's God's grace. The word grace, just the simplest definition, is grace is getting what you don't deserve. In other words, grace is a gift. Christianity believes that humanity sinned against their creator, against God. That kept us separated from God. The penalty for that sin is death. But rather than make us pay for it, God gives us the gift of the forgiveness of our sins by Jesus going to the cross and dying in our place. That is a gift. That is grace. And it is through that work of Jesus on the cross and the tomb that allows God's grace to overflow to you. You and I, we, we don't understand how much God's grace is for us. We, we live so much in the here and now. Our eyesight is just on what is around us. We're going to talk about our circumstances here in just a little bit. But that, this is our world. And what we need to do is allow our eyes to get, as it says in Colossians 3, on things above. And when we do, we realize how much God's grace overflows to us. How much it abounds. It is for us. God loves you. He's passionate for you. It overflows to you. Why? Why does God overflow his grace to us? Look at the second phrase. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Again, the ESV goes with this big fancy word, sufficiency. Again, not not a word that we use commonly. Well, I think the the, uh, ESV uh, translators knew that some of us might stumble over that word sufficiency. So in my Bible, there's a little nine next to it, meaning there's a note. So you go down and you find the ninth note and it says, or all 
contentment. God's grace overflows you so that you will be content. And notice when you are to be content. In all things at all times. If we are honest with ourselves, we are not content in all things at all times. Do you know why? Because our eyes are on our circumstances. Our eyes are on the things happening around us, the things happening in us. Our eyes get so caught up right here, we don't see God's overflowing grace. And so we don't live in that sufficiency, that contentment to realize that we have all that we need. We have more than enough. So what do we have to do? Got to put our eyes on God. Realize that his love for us is so much as seen through the cross that when we become cross-centered people, we see how much his grace is for us and suddenly we can be content. And that means you can be content if you're poor or rich. It can mean you can be content if you're single or married. That you can be content if you're sick or healthy. In other words, you can be content Sufficient in all things at all times. To drive his point home, Paul quotes from the Psalms. Rather than just read verse 9 to you, I want to go and read the Psalm. It's Psalm 112, verse 9. And it says this. He is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. Now, when I pulled out my Bible this week and began reading through 2 Corinthians 9, 8 through 11, originally we were just going to do 8 through 10 and realized verse 11 fit really, really well. So I brought it back to this week. So I started reading through there. So I, I saw the quote there in, in verse 9 and saw it was Psalm 112. And so I just made an assumption. I assumed that the he was God. I mean, after all, God has distributed freely. We see through the cross of, of Christ that God gives us grace freely. He, he also is given to the poor. We see how God sometimes provides for the materially poor. But as we talked about last week, some of us are relationally poor. Some of us are emotionally poor. But all of us were spiritually poor. And God has given his grace to us. And so therefore, it would be no surprise to hear that his righteousness endures forever. So it's God. Actually, it's not. You see, the context of Psalm 112 is about the person that loves and worships and fears God. Listen to how the psalm opens up. This is just verses 1 through 3. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. And it goes on. To talk about this man, this person who worships God, who loves God, who fears him, who walks in his commandments, in his statutes. And that person distributes freely, will give to the poor, and therefore their righteousness will endure forever. Paul is trying to drive this point home that because God's grace overflows to you, you've received so much, you aren't to just be keepers and keep it to yourself. It is to now flow through you and you are to distribute it freely. And you are to give to the poor. You are to give financially to the monetary poor. You should give your presence to the relationally poor. You should give your wisdom to the emotionally poor. 
And you should definitely give Jesus to the spiritually poor. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are not to take all that God has given you and keep it to yourself. You are to give it away. You are to distribute freely. But as we talked about, as we opened up, this type of generosity, this giving, this is hard. It is really, really difficult at times to freely give like this. Because as we said, to give like that means that we're not going to have any longer. And it it leads us to this place that, hey, if I give that much to the the poor, I'm going to become poor. It's almost like Paul anticipates that emotional response. That's why he wrote verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Uh, last week, or I mean, two weeks ago, we began a, uh, uh, we talked about this assumed truth that everything we own is ours. But then we saw that the true truth is that everything we have is actually God's. Which means that what you have, you're just merely a steward of a caretaker. Which is why God can tell you to give. You see, because it's not yours, you can't then just keep it for yourself. It actually belongs to God. And so when he tells us we are to give freely, we are to distribute, we need to do what he's asked us to do. Because that reflects his heart. Because notice, he's the one who gave us the seed to the sower. He gives the seed to the sower to plant in the ground, to grow up as wheat, which then gets harvested. The, The kernels get crushed into the flour and the bread gets baked and now your belly is full. Well, if God could give you it initially, notice what he says. He can then also multiply your seed. In other words, you can give it and you're not going to have less. Because if God was able to provide it to you in the first place, guess what? He can provide it to you the second time and the third time and the fourth time. Because when he sees you giving like that, he's going to keep giving you more. Because you're reflecting his heart. Uh, last week, we, I brought you a video of a uh, family who had opened up their home to a single mom. And they had uh, adopted a couple of their own children, but in the process realized that rather than just rescue kids out of foster care and adopt them, maybe we should try and help you know, a, a person whose kids would end up in the foster care system. And so if you remember the video, they brought in a young woman, a 17-year-old who was pregnant, to live with them. And then they're helping to raise her babies and then allowing her to go to college. And what we discovered through their video was that they had found joy. So we were talking last week about giving cheerfully. And even though it was quite a sacrifice, they had so much joy. They were able to do all of this cheerfully. Well, this week I found another video. And it's a video that helps us see that when you give, you can actually trust God. This is a man by the name of Justin. And he's going to share with you the struggles that he and his wife were going through financially. And how difficult it was for them to come to a place to say, God, I want to give. But I want you to listen to his story because it shows what we're learning right here. So please pay attention to Justin's story. So my wife and I have been married for nine years. We have four kids. We had a lot of disagreements about finances and where our money should go. Our finances were really tight because of the fact that we were just not planning well. A lot of times it was just 
a completely stressful situation of knowing that we're living paycheck to paycheck and we are struggling to make ends meet. We would usually try and pay all of our bills down first and then whatever was left, it's like we might tithe. We never really felt like we had the money to do it. So then we took that Dave Ramsey's class, and one of the things that he talks about is, you know, people say that a lot, is I've paid all my bills, and then at the bottom there's no money left to tithe. And I love his statement where he says, well, you have your budget upside down. You tithe first, then you start with your bills. That really opened our eyes, that God wants you to give the first of your fruits, and he tells you to test him on it. My wife and I were debating, uh, should we go ahead and just start giving the full amount of 10% of, of our income? And we were really nervous about it. I, we, we put it on a budget, and we saw that it was going to be negative. On paper, it, it wasn't going to work. We prayed about it, and we just took that leap of faith, and we decided to do it and just trust God. There were times where we were really close to not being able to pay a bill. No matter what the situation was, God always sent the money somehow. A few months later, I got a promotion at work which came with a sizable salary increase. It was completely unexpected. We adjusted our tithe to match that salary increase. We knew that we were putting God first in our finances and every first bit of our finances was going to God, and that ultimately took the money fight out of it. I hope what you heard in there is that they had to come to the place where they really trusted God. As he said, on paper, it didn't make sense. They, they weren't going to be able to give 10% of what they made and then also pay all the bills. But they went ahead and said, all right, God, we're going to trust you because you're the one who's given us all of this. This isn't technically ours. And so we're going to begin by giving first. We're going to trust you to provide and multiply the seed so that we might be able to pay all of our bills. And they did. But there's also another part of the illustration in there, and it comes in verse 11. Verse 11 says, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Uh, last week, as we were talking about giving cheerfully, I shared a little bit of the baggage that I have uh, have had in this idea of giving. Uh, how I, I continued to give, but I, I didn't do it cheerfully. And some of that was because my interpretation of what my church taught me was that when you give 10%, when you give sacrificially, God will return it 100-fold. Right? So it was like God was an investment scheme. And, and it just, as I didn't see that being lived out and played out, it just left me doubting. And so I still gave... But yet I, I didn't do it cheerfully because I just had a lot of hangups surrounding it. I want you to realize that I know I'm not saying that if you give financially, that God is not going to also give to you financially. Because notice it says here, you will be enriched in every way. And so, yes, while my church would focus on that, you will be enriched, you'll be made rich. It doesn't say you will be made rich financially. Some of you. Yeah, you will be enriched financially. As, as you give generously, God's going to continue to pour into you because he knows you're reflecting his heart and you're going to give to others. But for some of you, the worst thing God could do to you is to enrich you financially. Because what would happen is you would end up trusting in your finances 
rather in the one who gave you those finances. And that is not the place where God wants you spiritually. The kindest thing he could do to you is to allow you to continue to struggle so that your dependency is based upon him. And you then end up being enriched spiritually. You end up being enriched emotionally. Maybe he's going to enrich you relationally. And maybe one day he will enrich you also financially. But don't wait until that day when he enriches you financially to say, okay, now I'll start to give. No, you heard what Justin said. They began to give and God provided. In fact, did you hear? God provided them with a promotion. I can't tell you how many times I've heard a similar story where someone says, all right, Malachi 3 says to test God on this. I'm going to test God on this. I'm going to give. And suddenly things turn around. Things change. It, It might be a few weeks later, a few months later, a few years later. But sometimes God does that. He's even done it in my own life. So don't mishear me. God can provide for you financially. But it doesn't just say he will enrich you financially. It says he will enrich you in every way. Maybe he right now is trying to enrich you in some other area of your life. Finances is not the area you need to focus on. He's wanting you to grow in other areas. So maybe those are the areas you need to look at. How do I need to give in these areas with my time, with my influence, with these skills that God has given me? Because notice what it says. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. The whole reason, as we've already been saying, that God pours these things into you. He overflows his grace to you so that you might overflow in good works. He enriches you so that you could be generous. And he enriches you in every way so that you will be generous in every way. How do you need to be more generous? Maybe it is financial. Maybe God is calling you to do something like Justin. Trust me on this. Test me. Begin to give. Whether that's 10%, 8%, 12%, give it. Trust me. I provided the seed. I can also multiply that seed. I can take care of you. But maybe you need to right now be giving of your time. Maybe that's the area that you're being a keeper. You've been really, really selfish with it. And now God is saying, I want you to give me more of your time. Maybe that's just time in the scriptures. Maybe that's giving your time to a certain person. God has put that person on your heart and you know that person is a keeper. They are a drain on your emotions. And yet to be like Jesus means you might need to go and give some time to them. Go and give some of your presence. Go and show kindness. Maybe you have a skill. You've just been holding on to it. And right now God's saying, I want you to give that to the Riverwood. I want you to go in and help volunteer at that ministry. I want you to go to that neighbor and I want you to use that skill that I gave you. I've enriched you with it. Now, will you go and be generous with that? And notice what happens. The very last phrase of verse 11. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. When you give Like Jesus gave. When you give in this generous way, it produces thanksgiving. And I believe it will produce thanksgiving in the person who receives. But it will also produce thanksgiving in you. At Riverwood, we've held just a couple of small capital campaigns over the course of our seven and a half years. I have been blown away at the generosity that I have seen from you. 
The fact that we were able to get into this building debt-free, remodeling it, is a testimony to your generosity. And you know what happens? I can't help but thank God. You have produced Thanksgiving in me. And some of you, when you walk in, you find yourself giving Thanksgiving as well. Aren't you thankful that we don't have to tear down for the fair? Aren't, aren't you thankful that we don't have people look at our building and go, yikes, like they did with the fairgrounds? Aren't you thankful that some people can walk in here and immediately know they're welcome to be a part of this? This place says you belong here. I can't tell you how many times I've had people who aren't part of the Riverwood family walk in those doors and the first words they say are, wow, we didn't spend lavish amounts of money. We did a lot of this ourselves. And yet we did it in a way that people walk in and go, oh, this is nice. I like this. And they are thankful that something like this exists. When you give at that level, it produces thanksgiving in them and in you. So I just want to end then with a question. Why in the world? After hearing all of this from 2 Corinthians 8, I mean, 2 Corinthians 9, 8 through 11, why in the world would you want to be a keeper? Really, why would we want to be keepers when we know that God's grace overflows to us? Why would we want to be a keeper when we know that God can make us sufficient in every circumstance? Why would we want to be a keeper when, when God is calling us to abound in every good work? Why would we want to be a keeper when you see that it is God who supplies and enriches us? Why would we want to be keepers when our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, was a giver? So, Heavenly Father, we just pray that you would help us to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. That we would become givers. That we would not seek to keep our finances, our influence, our skills, and our time to ourselves. That instead we would open up these fists, we would let go of these things, and we would give them for your glory and for the joy of others. God, would you use us to produce thanksgiving. Thanksgiving in others. And then let us come to a place where we are thankful that you chose to use us. God, for the person who is struggling to trust. They're struggling to trust that if they give this up, that they won't be a less than that they will actually be fine because your grace overflows to them. It abounds. So you now call them to that same radical generosity to give. God, I pray that Riverwood would be a place abounding in generosity so that we might reflect who you are in your heart, that people would sense your grace through us that people would sense how much you love them, that people would sense just the lavish lengths that you went to to generously die for their sins so that they could be saved and redeemed and come into a relationship with you. So Father, would you transform us into that image of Jesus? But to do that, God, we've got to trust. So God, would you grow our faith? Would you expand our desire for you? Would you expand our view of you? Help us come to a place where we can give and we do so without worry, without fear. We don't do this uh, out of compulsion. We do this with joy. We do this willingly. We do this cheerfully because God, we trust you to provide. 
So God, as we open up our fists to you, and we know that you can then flood our fists, that we would have more than we could ever hold or handle, and we would have no choice but to give. So God, do your work in us. Change us from keepers into givers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So now we want to worship the greatest giver of all. I invite you to the communion tables to take up those cups. If you are a follower of Jesus, would you take this, make this part of your worship? If you're joining us online and you have some crackers and juice, would you take these as well? Anytime during this song, just thank God for being a giver. Thank him that he didn't just keep everything to himself. He gave of himself so that he could have you. You see, God is a keeper in one thing. He wants to keep you in the palm of his hand. He loves you. He's passionate for you. And so will you come? Will you run to these tables realizing Jesus gave it all for you? And by doing so, he now calls you to do the same, to go and give it all for him. If you are not a follower of Jesus, I'm just going to ask that you very respectfully and quietly not go to these tables. Because really, this moment right now is not about these communion elements. This moment is about God's love for you and what he gave. You see, what I long for more than anything else for you is that you would understand how much God loves you. That Jesus died on a cross for your sins and he invites you in to a personal relationship. Think about that. The God of the universe who created all things wants you to know him intimately. So instead of getting up and going to these elements like the rest of the church family, would you just stay where you're at and would you have a conversation with God? Ask him if it's true. Test him. And if you sense the Holy Spirit saying it's true, will you trust? Will you put your faith in him? Because I'll be honest, the story's crazy. (laughs) A triune God, three in one, creates everything. And yet humanity sins and walks away from him. But God loved us so much, he sent his one and only son, second member of the Trinity, comes into this earth, takes on human flesh, lives the only sinless life that's ever been lived, and yet he goes to the cross and dies in the sinner's place. Yeah, the story's ludicrous. Absolutely nuts. It's also completely true. And if it's true... God is calling you to give yourself to him. That's why I say, don't worry about these elements. Instead, right now, deal with your trust issues. Come to a place where you say, God, I trust you. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, may this be the time where you put your trust in him. If you are a follower of Jesus, would you express your trust by coming to these elements and incorporating this in? And let us worship the giver, Jesus, who gave it all for us. Let's do this now in remembrance of him.